Hi there. Two bits of programming matter at the front of this episode. First, I was coughing all during this episode. I recorded it while I had bronchitis. I believe I have edited all of those out. However, please forgive me if I missed any. Um, additionally, because of that illness, my planning for the next season has been just a little bit derailed. Please be patient as we get the schedule back on track. Thank you for your patience as I have worked out the scheduling for this one, too. Um, getting it out there for you. However, this is a fun episode about a fun book, so um, I look forward to you hearing it. Okay, bye. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld. It is a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books and the related works by Stephen King. I'm your host, Cole Ross, and today I am joined by Jim Stormdancer. Hey, Jim. Hi. Hey, welcome. This is your first time on the show. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Probably so, probably the last one because you've already passed the point the point at which I stopped reading the Dark Tower books. Uh, what point was that? I don't remember if I finished Wizard in Glass. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a wall for people. Yeah. And, and I, I there was a big temporal gap there. I don't remember if it was like a gap in the right, the time spent writing it, mm -hmm. or I just took a break. But I read uh, the first three books when I was a teenager, and then the Wizard and Glassic, like probably eight years later, and it was either I changed or those or the the series did. Uh probably both. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, today we are here to talk about from a Buick Eight. Um, before I ask you the question uh, about why uh, why did you hop onto this episode, uh, people uh, I just want to let people know where they might know you from uh, from the Video Games Hot Dog Podcast, and also you're the creator of the Frog Fraction series. Yep, yep. it's uh, it's a weird troll video games. <laughs> Funny weird troll video games. Um, I, I mean, hopefully, yeah. sometimes the joke is on the player. <laughs> I, I like those jokes, uh, you know. Oh, oh good. Yeah. Um, so uh, you hopped on for From a Buick 8. Uh, how come? Uh, this was, well, I, I read a bunch of Stephen King when I was younger. Mm -hmm. um, and this was one of my, I don't know if it was one of my favorite of his works, but one of the most memorable because I read it like right after reading a bunch of Lovecraft and it struck me like as very much trying to do that sort of thing, but in a modern setting, uh, which I had, um, I had never really personally conceived of as possible. Right. Like, because to take like that, yeah, because that it's just so the aesthetic is so tied to, and the weird thing is like, it's not like Lovecraft was writing historical fiction. He was writing contemporary fiction from a certain perspective. The aesthetic is just so closely tied to that era. To that to, um, to the twenties, like like a more information poor era, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just so I'm happy that you noticed this. I went in basically knowing nothing about this book, and this is Lovecrafty as all hell. Yeah, and it's it's gotta be on purpose. Like King himself was a Lovecraft fan, as far as I know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't. I don't know why I say was like he died in that truck accident. <laughs> uh, you know, the different, uh, the, the different universes and such things branch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, that's a sure. That's a theme of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, he's he's pretty old. You know, it's uh it's it's one of those things. Um. Very true. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I had no idea what to expect with this. This is pretty high up there for, uh, for, for King books that I've been introduced to through the show. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, and it, it's interesting that like, it's basically just structurally, it's basically just a series of weird shit, a card, like a, a fake car does. <laughs> um, but somehow like just wrapped in the context of really richly drawn characters and how it affects their lives. Yes. Yeah. That- yeah. And uh, also like the most dangerous stuff is their job as well. Like, right. like the, the, this bizarre thing, it doesn't actually have that high of a body count. I think it, it is directly responsible for the deaths of two people. Right. Um, that's that sounds right from my memory. Yeah. Like they speculate about some others just about and the, one of the people we don't like very much. Yeah. So no, you know, no, 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 uh, uh, no, no great loss. I, th- I think is <laughs> no, what... no harm, no foul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, oh, will... but, but oh. then there's the dog, um, ah, which shit. many people like more than, and then a human. So, yeah, no, this is, um, if, if you look this up on, does the dog die? The dog emphatically dies in a yeah, very, it's very it's... bad way. Trigger warning, dog death. Yeah, it's it's a real bummer. Mister D's a good dog too. Yeah, it's like like he 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 gets to just be a dog. He's not a dog that they made into a cop. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this was published in two thousand two, and it takes place uh, at this state trooper barracks in rural Pennsylvania, uh, pretty far outside of Stephen King's realm of experience. He had to uh, get a lot of. Uh, kind of outside input, like factual research input uh, to make this thing ring true. Uh, I I liked this quite a bit because my dad is a state trooper. So a lot Uh of this stuff um, like matched with things that I heard growing up. That's cool. That's cool that it was close enough to the actual job that it, uh, it, that it passed at least that that sniff check. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, it just uh, like the, the things are different. Like every different state has different, uh, you know, like a different culture, or different things. But like, yeah, you know, it, it matched up with stories, especially like the weird, offhanded, goofy stuff. You right. know, the thing, the, just like, oh yeah, we found this. We pulled this drunk guy over, and blah blah blah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, y- you would be forgiven for making the assumption, like I did, that this was just going to be a re a redo of Christine, like oh Stephen King writing about a demon car. Um, (laughs) uh, no, it's almost like he set out specifically to make a horror story about a car that doesn't move because this is an oral history from these troopers talking about the strange car that they found. I I never, I never read Christine. Is that, does that, because does Christine run people over? Yeah. Christine is like a possessed demon car that like uh, a person, like an old guy, like an old greaser was using, uh, he made a pact, uh, by killing his wife. Um, he, he was using it to, um, uh, like, uh, maybe like as a backup for his personality, like huh. for himself as a, as a way to like hop to hop bodies. So Christine was the name of the car. It was named after the wife. Um, that guy died. Somebody like a, like a kid, like a high schooler bought the car off of him and the kid starts acting like this, you know, old criminal who owned the car. And then Christine also was like trying to kill everybody who was stopping the, like the download from happening. It's really weird. 
the that's mo- super complicated yeah <laughs> it is it's a little it's a little bit um crazier than demon car uh technically Christi- right, right. christine christine does take place in the dark tower because the car that, Hen- that that appears to take henry bowers from the uh asylum back to Derry and it is christine it is the plymouth fury no oh. yeah weird yeah um, and then also the toy car that one of the kids is playing with in the Dark Tower movie is a Plymouth Fury. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I was I was at my parents' house um, uh, earlier tonight, and they were watching It. Like, my stepdad just put It on because my niece hadn't seen it yet. And I was, like, calling stuff out and saying, like, oh, that's Georgie. That's so-and-so name and all this stuff. And I'm like, Cole, what, what, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is more information than we want. This is, uh, this is like the – well, it's not – quite like that it's more like the you're doing a live director's commentary on the movie as opposed to the i was going to say the commentary track for uh the monty python uh, and the holy grail where it's just a bunch of geeks reciting the line uh, lines along with the actors yeah Ooh, no 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 <laughs> is, is that a thing really I, I mean, I'm I'm positing that this is a, a alternate audio track because that's just like that's I think so many people's first impression of that movie is cr- uh, a huge crowd of people watching it and knowing it really well and like the jo- it's impossible to spoil the jokes for each other so they're just it's just becoming like a shared ritual yeah like like Rocky Horror Picture Show or The Room or something right. like that yeah 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 it, but like unlike rock like in the case of Rocky Horror um I haven't seen that one, but my understanding is that like part of like a huge part of the value of that movie is watching it with a big crowd of people who like it. Right, uh, right. Because whereas, they all jeer at it at the same times and there are like specific rituals that they do. Right. Whereas um, Monty Python's movies are really funny if you're not watching them like that. Right. And just <laughs> aggravating <laughs> if you are. Yeah, I, I'm I'm positive that if that did not exist, you just spoke it into existence. So, Oof. oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I... Um, yeah, we alluded to the fact that this is pretty Lovecraftian, specifically because it is about the frustration of looking for answers that are not there, um, and you know, trying to impose reason on uh, things that are just really uh, scattered apart. There's a uh, several mantras in this, but the main character, of the flashbacks, uh, Curtis. He's got a little like nervous take where he says curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought him back. And that is kind of a, uh, uh, a bit of a summary of his, uh, of his drive. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, did your copy have the postscript where King talks about, um, uh, what the inspiration for this was? Yeah, it did. Yeah, (laughs) it did. I did the, I had to have a paperback of some sort, but yeah, apparently, uh, Apparently, he was inspired to write this book by nearly falling into a stream behind a gas station. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, what would have happened with all that stuff? Because he was, like, moving up from Florida. Like, he had a big truck full of things. Like, how long would that stuff stick around? And then, according... Oh, yeah. And specifically, I, I forgot the part about nearly falling and dying. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, if he, if he was just gone forever, like the uh, mysterious man is at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the story. Um, right. I also, before I read this, thought that um, uh, it had something to do with him being hit by that van. Um, oh, right. Because this is one of the first books that was completed after 
uh, after he was hit by that car in uh, in 1999. No, that was just a coincidence. Like nothing about the book changed as a result of his uh, kind of being hit. However, uh, in that postscript, he says, "Yeah, I got a lot of de- a lot of details right <laughs> about what it's like <laughs> to be hit by a car." When he talks about Curtis dying, um, I'm very thankful that this hasn't been made into a movie yet. I don't know who I would trust with it. Um, in 2005, they thought George Romero was going to do it. I think that would be terrible. What What has George Romero done other than zombie movies? Uh, zombie movies and other schlocky kind of stuff. And his zombie movies have gotten worse over the years. Right. But like to 2005, that isn't like prime cut George Romero. Yeah. I, I don't want to type to, because uh, it would be picked up on the mic, but... I was reading about um, apparently there's a, a new couple of writers who are trying to take a stab at it uh, as a result of like it being a, a really popular uh, a popular movie with a lot of income. Mm-hmm. There's there's a resurgence in like people trying to adapt Stephen King works, and that's one of the ones. And I, I recognized the names of the writers, but I don't remember what they are now. Yeah. So. Um, I can, I, I can pick that up if you have, if you have more to say about what you think a, a movie adaptation of this would, uh, be good, good at and good for. Uh, it's hard to imagine. Um, it, you could, you could just shoot it like, like all the, the best scenes from the book, put those in a row and that would be not a bad movie probably. Yeah. Uh, but making all the the stuff that was just kind of hinted at in the book so much needs to be literalized to be able to put in front of your eyes right that it would be a uh, you'd need some really uh creative cr- really creative really out there artists to do the do the material justice and i it would be it would be tricky yeah so much of kind of the symbolism of this is brought forward in kind of internal monologuing that happens yeah um, there's that yeah, and uh, the conversations would be very strange. It's it's weird, right? Because he started writing this in 1999. There's a certain found footage aspect to the story. It, it, well, it's told um, in, like, the framing device is that everybody, there a bunch of people are telling the, the story of this car to a, uh, to the new kid. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, they could, it, they could do the uh, internal monologue stuff with, like, narration style, uh, like it's a similar style framing device of like just put the words in people's mouths. Oh yeah, do it like a and voiceover. I think that w- I think that would work. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, it, it found footage stuff is coming back to. I think that they could assemble that as well. Yeah, huh. that's true. Yeah. Um, the script that was written back then was by uh Jonathan Sheech and Richard Chismar. Oh I- yeah, that was uh I. I'm, I- that was um, Jonathan. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I don't think it's Cheech, mm. but uh, he was uh, Jimmy in That Thing You Do. Oh, yeah. I don't care for that movie too much. I saw it. <laughs> my, so it's it's one of those movies that my stepdad just watches over and over again. It's that and A Few <laughs> Good Men. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, that that one wore itself out. Um, but, yeah, he definitely was in that. Um, he was in a, bu- in a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and also like the, like the new directors that it went through were Toby Hooper and William Brent Bell, but I don't know. Yeah. So that's probably the name that I recognized when I was talking about knowing shit. Yeah. Who knows? Um, it's, it's neat to see that bumper crop of, uh, Stephen King adaptations getting picked up because there's still plenty of good movies to make. 
I'm curious yeah. about Dr. Sleep. I liked that book quite a bit. Um, that's going to have a lot of baggage by being a sequel to The Shining, but... Right. Yeah. Um, it yeah, been... I mean, it, it could be good. It, yeah. You could just make do shining adaptations for a thousand years and probably some of them would be good yep <laughs> a thousand monkeys writing a thousand shining adaptations each yeah. right yeah um so there are some dark tower connections in this um the buick is pretty similar to the cars that the low men drive the cantoy those off people who have chased callahan around uh we're gonna see more of them uh in book six and also uh, around book seven when we talk about hearts in atlantis um, yeah, they drive these cars that are not quite right. Additionally, there's speculation, uh, both on StephenKing.com and on various wikis and discussions that the strange man who leaves the Buick behind at the gas station. Uh, some people say that that is Randall flag. Uh, other people say that it is a low man. Um, are you listening along with the show, um, past where you read Jim? Uh, no, I, I, I will, uh, cherry pick like if you, if you cover another book I've read, I'll, I'll listen to those ones, but yeah. not, uh, I haven't, I haven't listened to ones about stuff I haven't read yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, we, I don't think, yeah, you, you hadn't encountered the Cantoy. That is, a, a definitely a, uh, book five, six, seven thing. That right. They bring in. Yeah. Uh, just, just weird otherworldly people, um, that wear human skin mask kind of things. Um, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the monsters that come through, uh, the Buick. Um, because the Buick itself is not directly a monster. It summons them in. Uh, they're really similar to the ones that appear in the mist, uh, with the exceptions of the big tentacle guys and things like that. Uh, and thus are pretty similar to the monsters that exist in Todash space beyond the thinnies and kind of in the, uh, the layers between the towers. Yeah. Um, and then there are recurring names. Um, one of the main narrators has a last name of, of Dearborn, like Will Dearborn, uh, Roland's alias and wizard and glass. And Curtis studies dissection in a book written by someone with a last name, Maturin. So these uh, connections, it's it's hard to to get a read on whether those are like my my sense of it is that these are not we're not in the forefront of the author's mind when he wrote this book about like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna tie all these stories into this other story I'm weaving right um, and that arguably these are um it is this other work this this expansive work that has its tendrils out psychologically into everything around it that uh that is is it kind of like is a magnet for making connections uh which i, I which i think is a really neat phenomenon and like aspirationally like that's a really cool thing for a a creator to do Right. It's like every individual thing that he has done, um, you know, even when he isn't set out to directly connect it, it's like he's adding a bunch of stuff that he can work in later if he so chooses. Yeah. Right. Because like he started this in 1999 around the time that Hearts in Atlantis, that that collection was put out. Um, yeah. The Low Men and the Yellow Coats. I don't even know if that was supposed to be like, I don't even know if that was written as a Dark Tower connected thing. I don't know yeah. what the intention was, but it absolutely is. Uh, you yeah, because like Anthony Hopkins character, you know, shows up in book seven spoilers, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, like he's just deciding, you know, like laying all this stuff out and deciding if it fits in the palette or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason I'm thinking of this probably is that this is the sort of thing I was trying to do with the uh, the Frog Fractions 2 Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. 
the idea that like this is creating an atmosphere where every game might have another game hidden hidden in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the saddest things I've done in my life was ruining that by actually releasing Frog Fractions too. <laughs> it's 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 a toxic assumption that there needs to be like a like a work product like a like an actual like viable thing at the end of something like that oh unfortunately that's what i promised yeah you know but like that just man like that that was such a wonderful fiction you guys did (laughs) yeah i'm very proud of that yeah um yeah, like for for all the for all the times that that kind of became like a like a weird goofy played out joke, like oh, it's Frog Fractions too, lol. Like I don't know, I, I like I was curious, I was like into the hunt. Like uh, around the time Frog Fractions two re- released, like there was a great write up done on Polygon. I think like uh, Justin McElroy did that, like yeah. like as like a almost like another oral history of like the Kickstarter up through release that I thought was really good. If people are curious about what we're talking about when we talk about your Kickstarter. Yeah, the 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 story of that Kickstarter and the story of the ARG and the story of the game's development are pretty well documented in the game's press. Mm-hmm. I have a, a talk about that process um, that I gave at, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the event. <laughs> Shit. It was a, a maze, mm, okay. which is still like one of my favorite gaming events that I can't afford to go to because they just... They paid for me to go there one year and give a talk. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, if you live in Europe, I highly recommend this uh, this event in Berlin. Hmm. And also, there's this YouTube video of me giving a talk about the ARG. Yeah. Um, I will seek out uh, those links as well. Uh, yeah, put, yeah. I can, I, can, I can send you some for the show notes if you have such a thing in your podcast. Uh, I do. Uh, and that would that would make my make my work very much easier. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I, I have no idea. Like, like, so what this adds, uh, just the idea that, okay, we have interdimensional stuff, which is something that happens a great deal in the Dark Tower books. Does anything that, you know, involves, does anything that involves hopping three dimensions autom- automatically make it part of the Dark Tower? I don't know. Oh, I, I think uh, the, the nature of the Dark Tower series makes it so. Yes. Like, what it does to you, like the reader psychologically... It makes makes you form those connections, and that's the power of that's one of the powers that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, but but it's very much it's very clear when King is sitting down and like writing a tower related thing. Like, uh, have you read Insomnia? Yes, yeah, yeah that's a yeah. good one. Yeah, <laughs> where it's a really like the first half of it is a really cool and neat horror story about a guy who starts seeing things, and like the very back there, it is like, haha, psych! It was a dark tower, dark tower book. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think about it at the time, but that's actually super weird. <laughs> it's like it's like super important. Like King says, it's not in the in the last book, but it totally is. Right, right. It, that that is a thing about like he is so convincing as a writer mm-hmm. that like you can you'll get sucked along at any weird shit, and it'll be like, yeah, of course that happened. <laughs> yep. I read this book. Um, I'm not a reader anymore, which is sad, but like I used to read like two or three books a week. Nice. Uh, and then I stopped taking a bus to work mm. and then didn't realize for years why, why, why don't I read anymore? Well, it's cause I'm not taking a bus to work. Um, and I read this book. I, I, uh, my experience trying to get back into reading was like, Oh, this is drudgery and this is not fun. And why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. Oh, because I want to be a reader. Um, <laughs> 
but I ripped through this book. Like I, I was staying up late to read it. Mm-hmm. And like, this is why I read this is fucking <laughs> like, because it's good and fun and entertaining and in like in some cases it's informative. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that gives me hope for the future of my status as a reader, like all I actually need to do is find the good books. Yeah. You just have to, you have to find, you have to find the stuff that makes you want to do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is also pretty slight as far as Stephen King goes. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like 400 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it moves really quick. Cause it's like, it's real uh, episodic as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's told from a bunch of different perspectives as well. So like, you're never like sitting in the head of somebody you don't like for too long. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, let's talk about what's going on here. Um, so we're introduced to this, uh, our primary narrator in the present is Sergeant Sandy Dearborn. Um, and he is talking about Ned Wilcox, this, uh, high school kid, kind of all American, uh, good guy who is hanging out around the, around the barracks after his dad, Curtis was killed by a drunk driver. Um, the evilly named Bradley Roach. You just know that guy's going to be no good. Anybody with the last name Roach, you know the author doesn't like them. I, I wonder. I wonder if that's a if that's a hidden perk of uh, of of being a uh, of being an author, especially like a, like a prevalent one. If somebody named Brad uh, wrongs yeah. you at some point, like, well, here you go. Oh yeah, like like Centaurum. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, or do that. Uh, oh gosh, that was the thing Michael Crichton did. I just realized that. Where he put that character in uh, in Jurassic Park or something that shared the name of somebody who gave him a bad review and made it so the character had a small penis. Oh, just the throwaway line about and his penis is really small. And the guy couldn't sue because in order for it to be libel, it has to be untrue. Um, and so he oh, would have. Oh, and you'd have to prove it. You would have. You would have to um, prove your penis size. <laughs> that's what I. <laughs> that's what I learned in school anyway. I have no idea. Like if you, if you walked it, like if they put up a curtain and you walked and, you know, op- opened up your pants in front of a judge, like who, who's to say what's big or small? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that might be apocryphal. Um, but it, but it is that, an incredibly is, petty there's thing. There's like, there's legal cases that establish that uh, there's case law that establishes that <laughs> if you have a small dick, they can, you have to wait. <laughs> I, have no here. I, I don't know. Okay, all right. No. We, we can. It's it's cool. This is not a law podcast, so we no. can say whatever the fuck we want. Yes, we can. Um, and if people decide to believe us, well, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, and, and Ned's doing some chores around here. Uh, I end up liking Ned. Um. However, uh, it, it like the 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 only dis the only disagreeable qualities that Ned has are impatience uh because he wants to know about his dad and also he's very much like his dad and I think he's reacting like a like a reasonable person would uh to the information that he's getting right yeah I don't know but he's just hanging around uh wants to be around the place where his dad worked he's doing odd jobs until he notices this shed with a strange blue Buick that has been there since 1979. And eventually they notice, oh, we've got a light quake happening here. It just starts flashing off these big purple lights and the temperature drops around it and there's a big hum and the radios go out. 
So yeah, they decide let's sit down. Uh, let's, let's take in now that you're working dispatch and, uh, you're a real sad kid because you got into college and you wanted your dad to see that. So we're going to tell you the story. Um, yeah, there's, there's this weird element of them kind of just deciding that like they're, they're trying to keep this, this weird, not car a secret because it's dangerous uh, but they can't keep it that much of a secret because it's just kind of in the shed behind the police station. Right. So they've got they've got these. They just have this. They decided that like, well, and every cop is just going to know about it, and <laughs> they justify that like, well, police can like. There's a culture that that just happens to be able to keep a secret. Yeah. And so, I guess it's because like they they probably do it because he saw the uh, light quake. But they just decide, okay, I guess he's close enough to a cop now, <laughs> even though he's going off to college next year or he's, whatever. He's got a pay stub. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 there's a little bit of buy-in that you have to take, right? Because if this thing is you know, letting out blinding flashes at uh, you know random odd times. Like, yeah, you know, the idea of keeping that a secret, like... And they, they, the story talks about, like, a couple of close calls where someone almost finds out about it. Yeah, they have, so, like, senators like, and governors coming by to do, like, uh, you know, honorary visits and things. And and there might even be, like, luck doesn't necessarily have to be a factor because the story also talks about how the car has, like, a certain degree of control about its surroundings. So maybe it wanted to remain a secret. Yeah, maybe the car knew that if it was if it, if it was found out by anybody who was not you know controllable as part of this culture, then it would be you know disassembled, etc. Right, or yeah. or put into some some situation that was not optimal for whatever its intention was. <laughs> yeah, for for whatever its purpose was. Yeah, um, but yeah, they're they're also telling it about telling him about it because like I think they feel that it's owed him a little bit specifically because the car was his dad's project. It was Curtis's project, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a couple of people, primarily uh, Sandy Dearborn, um, the current the current sergeant, and then there's kind of a rotating cast of uh, people who who give their who give their own little piece. But yeah, like the, um, the majority of this book, with the exception of like, I think like the final two chapters or the final two major areas, it all takes place, you know, back in the past. So 1979 up through 1988 are the, are the primary times. Um, what do you think about Ned's uh, reaction to Sandy's storytelling method? Because Sandy is really insistent on adding context um, and saying like, yeah, this is how the Buick became a background detail. Like, did that, what was that friction for you or did that seem to add? Oh, I think um, part of the theme of the book, and we've touched on this a little bit, is that this is not, like, not everything is knowable. Right. And I think Ned, in part, is there to provide the perspective of somebody who wants to just, like, no, just tell me, tell me what happened. Yeah. Tell me this, like, and and tell me, like, something that I would something that gives me closure or that I would recognize as like, here's why this is happening. Yeah. Or, or even just here is a story. And the, it's actually like, as a result, it's pretty hard for like, for the author to finish the book in a way that feels like a story. Mm -hmm. He does, I think, manage it, but it, it at least feeling like there's an arc that happens. Um, but 
it is very much like the the kind of the theme of the book that no this is not a thing that like if you can study it all you want but you're you, it's like studying white noise yeah where like you okay there's maybe there's a pattern here but even if you find it you're not going to know what to make of it yeah you know and it, it so much of this is disconnected that any melody that you find in the white noise is probably of your own creation right yeah although i actually like i i feel like the imagery presented uh from uh, in the book is and maybe this is because it's filtered through human perspectives in this even diegetically it's filtered through human perspectives mm -hmm. i feel like the imagery presented is a little bit too mundane to sell that yeah like the fact that they describe the thing that comes out of the car as a bat right like immediately the the reader visualizes a bat is like i i know about bats yeah i've, I've, um, I've seen like, bats in books in, in my head canon like this thing was constantly emitting like okay here's a life form that is from a universe that the laws of physics are such that like it just immediately dissolves into nothing right. because the laws of physics are different or like the light quakes are themselves a life form that comes out of the trunk mm. you know or or here's a civilization that passes through the trunk and you just don't see it because it's microscopic that sort <laughs> of thing is like the sort like approaching the kind of alienness that like i wanted to see from this thing yeah um so i conceptualized the uh, the light quakes as um almost a um uh like a like a weather event that was happening on the other side that just happened to seep through right <laughs> yeah um just like like a particular kind of storm uh that was going on um yeah so i i initially thought that i was annoyed at ned's kind of treatment of this because yeah he's he's listening to this story as though it has an ending um uh, and when i got to the end i kind of realized like oh that actually makes a lot of sense he's listening for an ending and kind of the story is like oh the story isn't over like they're telling him everything that happened up to now and this thing is still here and it's still doing its thing like we're living through it it's not done yet i realized i was actually annoyed with sandy because sandy was getting angry at ned for asking reasonable questions he was getting angry at ned for using the word that they used to describe <laughs> the bat like oh tell him about the fish and then whenever ned called it a fish like i think sandy just had like residual resentment for curtis that he was taking out on ned right <laughs> something like that because because sandy and curtis are set up against each other a little bit they've got different philosophies curtis believes there's an answer and sandy says yeah well we have to be ready for there to be none yeah well i think ned is supposed to be the audience cipher yeah, in this yeah. case like you're, he's asking the questions that the audience wants the answers to, mm -hmm. and when they're trying to convince Ned that there's nothing, there's not nothing to learn here. They're also kind of trying to teach that lesson to the reader. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, so <laughs> we already talked about how uh, uh, there was only a couple of people, uh, you know, who were directly taken by the Buick. Something that is kind of a background level of detail because Sandy is adding all of this context. Uh, we get a lot of uh, glimpses of the untimely ends that troopers just uh, suffer in the line of duty uh, or by their poor coping skills. You know, we learn a lot about like, oh, this person who was in the story, he's not here anymore because he committed suicide um, just because the job takes a toll. Um, yeah, and and any like almost any story that takes place over like thirty years like that, mm -hmm. and you see people dropping out of the picture, 
it is just a grim reminder that we are all aging meat sacks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, yeah. It not not something that I'm like super thrilled to, to be thinking of to be reminded of all the time. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, hell, even having like a child has done that. Like when I think about like, well, I've got to prepare for when this kid like goes to high school. Oh, I'm going to be in my mid fifties. Oh, cool. That, that, that'll be weird. Uh, doing, doing the calculus of like, okay, how old am I going to be at his high school graduation? Then his college graduation, if he chooses to go. Whereas before, before this, before having a child, the furthest I'd ever planned out my life in advance was the, the Frog Fractions 2 Kickstarter when I said it would take a year and a half. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you have a little bit of that kind of turn, turn, turn going on with Sandy as well because he's not the sergeant um, in this in this uh, story. You know, like we've got somebody who I need to see how it's spelled. Uh, the name isn't spelled like the, like it's pronounced. Uh, it's pronounced Shane Dinks, but it, it's spelled Shendukes or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember this. Yeah, to, to Tony. You're probably like probably if you remembered how it was, if you could spell it for me, I bet I would know who you're talking about. It's it's it's, it's Tony. <laughs> Let me. Oh 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 yeah, Tony yeah. Tony something. Oh, did Tony Shundist is the way that it looks that's, like it's pronounced? But that's, it's that's what I was. That's what I remembered. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he ends up another another grim, and this isn't even the end of his life. No, but another grim outcome is him being having dementia. Yeah, he retired because he was getting slow on the uptake, and like the troopers in the current day talk about going to visit him. Yeah, yeah, and like going to visit him and hearing him say, "Oh, I'm in hell. This is hell." Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that sounds like how I envision uh, Alzheimer's or dementia being. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I lost my grandpa to dementia earlier this year. It fucking sucks. I, I'm really sorry. No, thank you. I, I, I've I've talked about it a little bit. It was you know it 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 uh it is terrible. And even before I saw that, it was one of my greatest fears. And anytime it pops up in media, uh, I think even going back to like Flowers for Algernon or something like that, reading that in one, middle school. One thing about aging that is like the 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 silver lining that I see in it is that the closer you get like to death, <laughs> I'm betting that the more you start to welcome it because your life just starts getting worse. Yeah. Like, like you're, I don't know if you're like me, but when I was younger, I just never wanted to go to sleep. I would be like, you know, fuck sleep is sleep is basically death. Right. And I would stay up as late as possible every night. Uh, but at some point you're like, even if you feel like that, you're like, sleep sounds all right. I'm tired enough that sleep sounds okay. And I feel like I'm going to be like that with, with um getting old and dying too yeah yeah uh, well it's a uh, what not all days are good days right that's it's, yeah. you know just uh just more of them is not necessarily the uh you know my, more more of the best days you've ever had yeah yeah yep. yeah i've always loved sleep is, is is my problem i like hitting fast forward <laughs> <laughs> skip this bullshit you could sleep for the next two years yeah just skip a skip a day come on um <laughs> So let's talk about them finding this, uh, finding this Buick because coincidence of coincidences, the same person who killed Curtis, uh, the drunk driver, Bradley Roach, 
Um, well, he was the person who found the car. He was working at a filling station. A strange cloaked man appeared with the Buick um, and then walked back toward the bathroom and out of our dimension entirely. Uh, the only details being he was wearing a black trench coat. He had a vaguely Russian accent. They say it's like Boris Badenov from, uh, oh gosh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, he has a weird ear, and all that he said was, oil's fine. And gone. <laughs> <laughs> um i like this because it is kind of told a little bit from bradley roach's perspective like there are probably de details that he just didn't notice because he was reading the you know the inside view the uh, the weekly world news kind of thing going on right yeah um but they call troop d and curtis wilcox and ennis rafferty uh report to inspect this uh, we're introduced to the concept of earthquake country. Uh, the idea that before an earthquake, uh, the air will get colder around an area. Uh, and Curtis is immediately kind of infatuated with the car, um, noticing that it is completely spotless in spite of the rainy, muddy day. I want to camp out a little bit on the details about this car because I love all of the description that goes into exactly how wrong it is. I feel like this would be more meaningful to me if I knew what the actual Buick 8 was like. Mm. Yeah. So, like, the one that's on the cover is done up to be demonic. Right. Uh, it's it's a neat car. It is one of those, like, old, big boat kind of cars. Um, right. If you, if, if you just do if you do a search, like, don't look at, a like, a modern one, like the ones from the 80s, because those look like a, a ugly 80s old man cars. Um <laughs> Weirdly enough, I'm talking. I'm talking a lot about my family uh, today. There's a picture of my grandma, like when she was a teenager, like you know, way back in the day, probably around like the early 50s, late 40s, something like that. Uh, leaning against one of these, like they had a friend who had like this cherry, oh, like a like a cheesecake shot, kinda, yeah. Like it was, she, she, I think she maybe took. Those are it. always fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, like you, 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 you were. Yeah, you know, I, I remember discovering that my grandmother was once beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you can you can look at her and see it like, oh, yeah, I can I can trace the line between this and that. OK, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe she took it to send it to my grandpa when he was in Korea. I have Aww. I have no idea, but it's a but it's a picture that popped up and I was like, yeah, that's a that's a Buick. It's got those portholes on the hide on the on the side and stuff, even without knowing what this thing looks like. Um, Just the description of the of the dashboard is really right. cool to me. The fact that like all of the controls are just kind of held in place they're not connected to anything well one of the fun things about that this part of the book like so far is that um like this could be someone's like yeah i just made a prank fake car <laughs> to, drop, to leave at like at a gas station as an art project yeah they, they they raise that possibility as well, and they even refer to it as like an objet d'art, uh, just because it is basically a sculpture. Like it never could drive, right? Yeah, it's it's not until they get down to like inspecting the materials where like, oh, this is not like a like the glass in here is not like it doesn't bear the trademark or the composition of any glass that the forensic team has ever seen. Uh, right. the, the, the dashboard, you know, it's, it's maybe Oak, but we can't identify it. And it's like, this is a scientific team that is meant to identify cars. Yeah. No, I invented my own glass processing technique. Yes. I made it from sand in order to make my fake, my art, not car <laughs> to, to give to these cops. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big it's a big paperweight. It's it's my it's my gift to you a lifetime right. a, a lifetime of worry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it can never run. There's you know the wires in the engine to go and you don't go anywhere. The 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 steering wheel, like the entire thing, it just kind of seems like maybe somebody's idea of a car uh, made vaguely to blend in and kind of like that almost off verisimilitude yeah, to almost, this. Almost like a Ford Prefect naming oh, himself that. Yeah. Like, because, uh, the in, I don't know, if you, if you guys haven't read the, the Hitchhiker's Guide series, that character named himself Ford Prefect because when he was traveling to Earth, he thought that the car was the dominant species on the planet and he wanted to blend in. <laughs> so yeah, just like seeing this as an artifact of an intelligence wanting to um, create something that would fit in well enough that people would treat it as part of the scenery, at least for a while. But yeah. also maybe like it also might honestly have been part of their intention to make it be interesting enough to pay to, to be around it and pay attention to it. Yeah. Like this, this is a curiosity. Like we need to treat it with special care. Like we need yeah. to give it a place of prominence where it can sit and do its thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, if if that was the intention, they succeeded. I mean, this thing yep. has been kept in very good custody for many, many years. You know, yeah, if, true. If you consider good custody being um, everything that comes out of it, they kill with a rake. <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't just die on its own, yeah. Yes. Yeah, if, if it doesn't die. Man, I want to talk about those monsters. They're so good. Uh, no, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Yep. Uh, but they take it back to the station, and very quickly, Ennis Rafferty disappears. Uh, they have no way of knowing um, exactly what happens. Um, they just know, oh, well, like, he never returned back to his house. His sister never saw him again. He left his workout clothes um, where they were. He's just gone. Um, they can only conclude, like, oh, the car probably ate him somehow. Like, I think they even say that as a joke. Yeah, and this is something that is, this is an idea that is brought up early on and established pretty firmly as a near certainty by the end of the book, yeah. which I think kind of tracks the the arc of the character's understanding of of the situ of how, of what happened. Yes, uh, like what what it took was for was one of the people who's still alive to almost have what happened to Ennis happen to them. Like right. they, they they went through the process. Like, yeah, you know, we we can talk about this now. What what the car is doing is reaching out and fascinating people and drawing people into it uh, to climb into its trunk, um, so it can uh, be passed through to what's on the other side. Yeah. yeah, and why it's doing this, we never learn. And like the the and this is part of the fun of this sort of story is hypothesizing why this thing even exists. Yes, like. Is there some scientist, probably not even a scientist with whose native universe is the two that are being linked, right? Who just is like kind of smashing these two places together and seeing <laughs> what happens? Is this a like, social thing because that there are sentient beings on both sides? Um, right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like let's let's learn what happens when these two <laughs> races meet. Yeah. Like, is 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 there is there an actual malevolence to this, or are we? just ascribing malevolence to it because the worlds that are connected are incompatible. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's one of my favorite Lovecraftian ideas is the the rejection of the concept of evil. Right. Like the the idea that like none of the none of the bad things in Lovecraft are are necessarily ill intentioned. They're just like no this this is a, this is a a creature or a state of being or just a place that is extremely bad for humans, and that is in fact true of the vast majority of the universe anyway right <laughs> yeah uh the and and the closest things that approach you know actual like capital e evil that you encounter in a lovecraft story are the evils that one person who is trying to understand or has been broken by exposure does to another person like it is it right. is humans misunderstanding and acting on each other too right yeah because because what is perceived as that greater evil is just a complete indifference to any idea of what you uh, uh the ways you would act or what your motivations would be yeah there's a similar scene or, or similar like idea in the tommy knockers um where uh, th 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 that's a story about like a town being i guess they they get there like there's a ufo that lands there or something and the town all is blessed with like weird they i, I think what's happening is that their mind melding with alien intelligences and the way this presents itself at first is that they all, like, they they remain human, but they start having the knowledge and abilities of these aliens. Mm -hmm. And so they all start inventing weird shit. Like, uh, one of the the kid who wants to be a magician men, invents a way to actually teleport things mm -hmm. um, and ends up teleporting his little brother to who knows where <laughs> um and there's just a a flash of like oh yeah i know he's on some alien planet where he died immediately because of the <laughs> temperature or the atmosphere yeah um and that feels a lot more like if this were just you know, even like if it were if it were like literally random it would be at a point in space where there was no light visible uh but that feels like the fact that the the places being connected are two places with seemingly intelligent life forms um, that can perceive each other as life forms and perceive like the planet on the, the, the like the universe on the other side as like here is a landscape with plants. Yes. Um, it seems almost inevitable that some intelligent thing uh, deliberately did this. Yeah. <laughs> Other otherwise how would it match up? Because if it was just a portal to a random place, um, then it would just like open up, I don't know, into magma or just well really realistically, statistically, just the vacuum of space. It would suck you out and you know, you right. decompress and freeze all those nasty things. Yep. Yeah. I can see that. Oh, man, so many good hypotheses in this. I don't even know if I'm satisfied with the one they reach at the end, but you don't have to be because it's really just, it's like an educated guess. Yep. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's weird about this, and this is important for that ending is that, uh, the Buick heals itself from all damage. They run tests on it. Like they try to pop the tires, but it just seals and then reinflates. Um, nothing will stick into the tires. No mud will stick to the outside of it. Even when they hang a tarp over it to cover it up, uh, it seems to shrug the tarp off. What that makes me wonder is like, could someone like steal the tires from this car, install them on their own car and just never have to buy new tires. Mm. 
Or would those tires roll back and try and get back on the original car, crushing the uh, the new car in the process? <laughs> I would, I would imagine that the like in, in my head canon, the the old car just grows new tires, and like a like a lizard regrowing its tail. So if you if you cut if you cut the Buick Eight in half lengthwise and then move move them far enough apart, will it just grow? T- will, will 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 you just have two Buicks at the end of that? Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, but they're each half as haunted. Oh, okay. Huh. And then, and then, and then, what happens is they they, they just collide with each other. You <laughs> f- 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 fuse up, um, and then they warp all of the the remaining mass back to the other uh, back to the other dimension. Or maybe they become. I mean, this is what you're saying. Forgive me. Like <laughs> maybe the trunks of the two Buicks become linked to each other. Mm. So if you if you drive one to. Uh, to LA, you can uh, have an instant teleport to uh, to visit your friend in LA. Oh, or w- w- would that would that be a little bit like putting a portable hole into a bag of holding that it eventually just inverts <laughs> inverts space around it? I I'm not familiar with this. Is this like established in one of the D and D rule sets? <sighs> Maybe it's that also might be an apocryphal meme that I just read about back in the early 2000s when I started playing D and D. Right. Um, yeah, but the, but but the idea is that those two things are are incompatible, uh, because right, yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 it causes like a basically a black hole or something uh, results from that. That's, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> just give your give your players the ability to end the universe. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, yeah. So the other thing that happens, they've got these light quakes that start up. The biggest deal is it cuts off the communications, which seems like a problem for uh for for a troop. But also, they got this dog, Mr. Dylan. I almost called him Master Dylan, which would be weird. Mr. D, um, who barks and runs at the shed. Um, you know, uh, they're initially worried because they think he's going to be burned up. Uh, they think he's going to be irradiated. But no, there's no heat. There's no radiation. It's just a bunch of light that comes through. Yeah, I think it's trying to um, portray dogs as having some sort of preternatural understanding that this is a bad thing. I wonder, were there any black people in this story? Because they would have the exact same role in a Stephen <laughs> King book. Yeah, um, so uh, that, that that's tricky. Uh, there are not a lot of people. Like, I don't think Arky's black because he's specifically Norwegian. Um, right. Uh, like, the, nobody has specifically said, like, oh, and, and his white pink skin, etc. How, <laughs> how, however, if there was a black person in a Stephen King book, even though nobody else's race was remarked upon, that would be remarked upon. So That's I don't, a good point. I don't yeah. know. Huh. This is tricky. Maybe the dog <laughs> was black. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, poor man, poor Mr. D. Um, but he's right. The dog is, you know, there, there, there's something happening. Something is coming yep. through. Maybe he's uh, uh, sniffing out these beings on the other side because eventually the arrivals start. Uh, Arky, the janitor, the custodian, notices that uh, the trunk is open. Uh, there are black smears and uh, all, black smears all over the inside of the shed and laying in the corner is the bat thing um, that reeks of cabbage and peppermint as it uh, uh, rotting cabbage rather and peppermint as it rapidly decomposes like oxidizes when exposed to our atmosphere. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the description of this thing. We, we, we remarked on the fact that bat is kind of not the right way to you know say it. Well, but... and and. And I think the cabbage, rotting cabbage and peppermint are filling the same sort of role there of being like 
it doesn't really smell like peppermint. But no. What what else? What are you gonna say? You say that this is this is like the the closest that your human uh, olfactory organ is capable of perceiving. Yeah, like your 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 nose, like the 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 buds in your sinuses or whatever are picking this up. They're picking up these these particular like hydrocarbons, and that's what it is. And now you're just gonna find you're gonna match it. It's gonna be like the end of contact. It is presenting as something you can comprehend. Right. There's the, like there's a little bit of a common biological vocabulary across these things too, like um, uh, crazy uh, like pink feeler kind of things in place of heads is uh, is is part of the deal. Um, also, nobody can really agree on the number of limbs that any of them have. That that I do like the the idea that like you might that the thing is perceived. Uh, there's like kind of like a snap to grid going on for each person. Yeah. But, but it's different for each person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it never sticks around long enough for anybody to like get an objective truth. Right. Actually count the limbs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, with the bat thing, they, you know, like they, they keep it around long enough to dissect it, but with the other stuff, like it, it doesn't stick around, um, enough because it just turns into like a white goo that, oh God, poor Arky. Bark, he has to squeegee up off of the crown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is about the time that Curtis becomes the uh, uh, the head of the Buick project. In my head, I cast him. I cast him as a, a, a Kurt Russell circa the thing. I don't know. Maybe okay. it's maybe wow, it's because that's... he kept on calling uh, Arky the. Uh, he called. He kept on calling Arky a Swede. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is that is a Kurt Russell kind of a thing to say. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, if it were if it were played by Kurt Russell, they would change his name to not be Kurt. Yes, um, that that also could be why I cast him as Kurt Russell in my head. <laughs> could be. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Curtis takes us over. Uh, Sandy, you know, we already talked about how how different they are. Sandy, you know, if Curtis's mantra is curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought him back, Sandy does not think satisfaction exists and says, why is a crooked letter that can never be set straight? So I like that. Uh, I, I like that dueling philosophy that happens there. Uh, this is when the experiments start up because Curtis is acting as a, uh, an amateur scientist. They uh, sacrifice lots of small animals. I love the exchange uh, between the sergeant and one of the guys says, okay, go get some gerbils, you know, take some money from the discretionary fund or whatever. And the guy says, Hey, uh, do you want me to get food? And the sergeant says, the sergeant says, no, we're just going to send them in there to starve. Get them food. You dipshit. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, right? Because like the, the, they are helped so much by procedure, um, you know, in, in dealing with this. Like, I think that the fact that they are a state trooper uh, kind of outfit, you know, they've got a number of things, you know, just, just the way things happen to investigate and deal with and deal with problems. But there's also the uh, uh, taking orders literally problem that goes on with this. Right. Yeah. But they sacrificed lots of lots of uh, tiny animals, uh, you know, and this kind of uh, puts a little bit of truth to what they suspected happened with uh, with Rafferty, with Ennis, uh, because like one of the frogs disappears, but the other doesn't. Uh, a gerbil uh, is taken from one side of the uh, of the habit trail that they put in, but not the other. Um, also, without uh, the whole thing being opened up, like it's taken from a closed box. And that's a that's a sign that it was not an intelligent thing to design this thing because those those gerbil uh, habit trails are really cool. 
Like, yeah. why wouldn't they want one of those? T- take one of those back and like, like run, run your own local fauna through that. Like you can only, yeah. I mean, if you don't learn anything, you still let your little, uh, you know, indescribable beetle creatures have a fun time, you know? Yeah. If they, if they have the concept of fun, <laughs> that's what they're missing. They're just trying to bring back fun. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, they, it's, they should have, uh, Sent the car like 30 years later so they can get the Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah. That thing would work over there for a while. Do you think that's what the radio was? Were they trying to send their Switch over? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And we just couldn't figure out how to play with it. They just couldn't find the on button. That's a thing. It really was just like a, like a thing made of rock. Right. <laughs> Something they talk about when the bat first comes through is uh, uh, the idea that there's kind of an exchange going on. Almost like there's kind of a conservation of mass going on. So it took Ennis and then it sent over this big bat thing for them to look at. Um, it's almost like they sent over the uh, they sent over these gerbils and frogs and whatever. And they're like, okay, what's our equivalent right here? Uh, have a bunch of leaves that'll turn into white goo. Yeah, there might be some sort of like exchange of matter happening. Like yeah. Atom for atom. <laughs> um. Man, just just thinking about like antimatter matter reaction kind of stuff. They're they're lucky that it just kind of degraded and didn't explode. Oh yeah, that's uh, the oh I forgot the name of this this hypothesis or the idea that like the reason that our universe hasn't the reason that we haven't like blown ourselves up uh, with uh, nuclear weapons is that um, in the ninety nine percent of 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 universes where that did happen. We just weren't around to observe it. Uh, is that like quantum immortality or something like that? that it's, we're... it's like that. The, the anthropic principle, I think is what it's called. Okay. It's just the idea that like it, the, as unlikely as it is that something would, that the universe is set up to be good for us. Yeah. Like of, of all the places, all, of all the, like the planets that we could live on that, most planets are like constantly bombarded with asteroids and gamma ray bursts and that sort of thing. Right. And the reason we live on this one is that this is the planet that just doesn't happen to have that, that be the case. Right. Right. Um, that, that is really unsatisfying to me because that place is some kind of primacy on humans. Like I, it it assumes that we matter. (laughs) Well, we matter to ourselves. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, it, it, it also feels a little bit like that, uh, what that, that candide quote that people think is sincere, but is actually, uh, but is actually sarcastic. We live in the best of all po- possible worlds. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, probably, 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 yeah. I don't know. Probability is weird. Um, they, they, they cut apart one of those bats. They cut apart the bat and they find out that it had babies. Um, but not before a huge explosion of goo, uh, covers everybody. Fortunately, Curtis had a mask on, otherwise he would have gotten some into his mouth and we see what happens with that later. Um, but yeah, this is, this is where, uh, it's hilarious because all of the troopers just start throwing up (laughs) because it smells and stuff like just cause it, they couldn't tell how many fucking skulls this thing had. They all (laughs) thought it was a different number. Yeah. Um, just like, okay, like, is this, is this spongy thing in its chest, its brain? Where are its lungs? Stuff like that. Yeah, they, and they set this they set the scene up by having Curtis spend I don't know like a year, like learning how to dissect stuff. Yeah. Um, and the outcome is that he cuts it open and doesn't have any sort of still doesn't have any sort of context for what he's looking at, 
because he was dissecting things from our own world. <laughs> yeah, where like a vertebrate kind of looks like a vertebrate, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're all just kind of like weird morphs of one another. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just different costumes on the same skeletons. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the 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 hilarious part, you spend all that time getting good, yeah, you know, get, getting good at dissecting, like starting with starting with frogs and then working up to different different things. He never told his family what was going on, but he still practiced at home. Oh yeah, so, so they were just like, oh, this is a weird, gross new hobby. Yeah, uh, a, a, a little grim, Dad. <laughs> yeah um four years later by 1983 they start making expeditions uh with ropes tied onto them uh nobody thinks it would work uh that that would help them but you know it, it's it's like uh what uh dumbo's feather right right um and they set up watches as well they've got a little uh a little jerk off shack back there um that they have to put people, they have to put people, they have to put people back there off the books so they're not being paid for it but they've got like a 24 hour watch on it. Oh, well, um, yeah, well, and what, what the hell are they going to do? You know? Like... <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it's funny because they set up that, uh, they set up that, uh, thermometer to, 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 to test and see like, okay, it's colder inside this shed. Like if it drops down, maybe that predicts when a light quake is going to happen. No, not really. Uh, and does a light quake predict when something will come through? No, not really. We just kind of think that they're correlated. Uh, but it does seem like the the temperature dropping is related to like things appearing and disappearing. Yeah, it's just not sure like uh, how much it needs to drop for that to happen. Yeah. Um. So the next arrival is a gigantic fish. Um. That doesn't really do much aside from kind of flop out of the uh, of the trunk because it's too big for it. Um, and also, uh, it's split down the side because of this pressure difference. Um, right. So presumably what's happening there is like the, the trunk can be hooked up to different, different parts of this planet. And like, presumably it's all the same planet because of the shared physiology between those creatures. But like, but there can only be a few places like they had one per biome or something. Because we revisit one of those places later in the story. Yeah. Like we, and so like we see that all the stuff from our side drops underwater. off. Right. Yeah. yeah. One of the, one of the places is underwater apparently because there's a, a not just a little bit of water because it's a, a deep sea fish that explodes at the surface. Yes. Yeah. So I have, I have, I have no idea. Like, I think like the, the drop off point is like a shore, I think. I, I, were, I forget. So, like, maybe if I may remember. Yeah, I don't really remember that the details there, but I think there was water involved. Okay. Yeah, it's like a it's like, it's like a big long uh, like like slope down to a rocky shore. That sounds um, right. Or at least that's what Sandy saw when he peeked through. Um, yeah. Uh, by the mid '80s, light shows get less intense, less frequent. All of those, and they get some beetles coming through. Uh, you get a gigantic flower that stinks and hurts to look at. Um, there's a, there's a thing they think is a red stick, but it's actually a lizard. Um, there's a bunch of gross, weird stuff, but it like settles into a rhythm and they've got a job to do again. And this thing becomes mundane. Um, I'm curious how the onboarding works around that. When, when you explain what a code D is. Oh, like, and especially later on when 
uh, the trooper, the new trooper might have been at it for like, he's been working here for a year before he finds out about this, before the, the, the car coughs something up because right. it's getting rarer and rarer. And <laughs> like, it, it's earlier on, like you knew what you were getting into. Yes. Much sooner before you got settled into your job. Um, and now it's more like you get surprised after a year and a half of nothing. Mm-hmm. Of like, oh, oh, shit, there's also this other weird aspect you have to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sometime around here as well that one of the troopers gets uh, uh, kind of manipulated uh, by the by the car as well. Like it wants to uh, climb they're, they're, it. The trooper wants to climb into the, the, the trunk as well and uh, um, avoids that. Uh, right. And we get to see the inside of that trooper's head because like he's one of the ones telling the story. Yes. To Ned. Yeah, it's like and it's super insidious, too, because he's like, I didn't I I didn't want to do this. I just found myself doing it like and even when we get toward the climax and Sandy is, you know, trying to save Ned from this thing, um, you know, he he is kind of outlining all of these coincidences, all of these small mistakes that he definitely wouldn't have made um, and taking precautions. Right. Right. It's 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 super cool the way they uh the way they do that. Everything here comes to a head in 1988 at the worst day ever. Uh the primary narr- narrators for this are um Shirley and Eddie. So you've got the the dispatch, uh, the woman who works dispatch and communications and Eddie who is kind of this unreliable guy who is sinking into alco- alcoholism. Um you know, he's he's popped up a couple of times in the stories as just kind of not being a real uh, not being a real great cop. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's here and he was one of the people who saw the major thing. And interestingly, the major thing is, you know, was not, <laughs> is not the time when a, a chemical tanker ran into a school bus. Right. Yeah. That, it just, that just happened to happen at the same time. Right. <laughs> Coincidences again, just like, just like the car that hit Curtis being driven by the guy who found, who found the Buick. Uh, they, they later hypothesized that the uh, Buick arranged this, uh, that it extended its influence, because what this did was it drew most of the troopers away from the barracks um, to right. go. So they had to they had to deal with the the result of this uh, of this like weird alien explosion um, understaffed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like maybe the Buick thought that if it drew most of the troopers away, that it would. Uh, uh, that whatever came out would have a bigger, a better chance of surviving, of getting out. Um, no idea. Uh, it is, it is, it is futile to put uh, human motivations on it. Uh, the other thing that goes wrong is that Eddie and his partner pick up uh, Eddie's uh, his his old high school bully Brian Lippy, who has gone full neo Nazi. He's hopped up on angel dust and he's beating the shit out of his girlfriend uh, in his truck on the road. Uh, uh, Brian Lippy is the perfect victim for yeah, this. And this is like, this is neo-Nazi in, in the eighties before it was cool. Yeah. But, but, but before we had a president, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, he's like wearing swastika necklaces and stuff like, um, the, you know, the, 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 there are lots of unlikable people in Stephen King stuff. This might be, you know, middle, straight up the middle. Uh, but I don't like this guy. <laughs> I'm oh, happy no. that the Buick it's... eats him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they arrest Lippy. Um uh one of them tries to speak some sense into his girlfriend, but that is to no avail. Um they bring him back to the station only to nar- to narrowly miss Mr. D. 
he is charging out in front of the uh, in front of the uh, tr- uh, cruiser, rushing toward the shed. Um, they uh, break very hard, and Brian Lippy breaks his nose. Uh, and they rush out to see what's going on. Uh, what's going on is that uh, Mr. D is running at a seven-foot-tall humanoid tripod thing that is standing in the shed. It has come through. Uh, we have a sentient being now. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> God, I love this thing so much. Not just because of his weird alien geometry and, like, the trunk that comes out of his uh, chest that happens to have his sensory organs... But for the fact that, like, he is sending out psychic screams that are, uh, that carry pictures of what it perceives the humans to be. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I interpreted that as, like, um, I don't know, metaphor or poetic license on Stephen King's part. Mm-hmm. I, I actually do really like the idea that, like, part of this thing's defense mechanism is to just tell you how bad you are. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this thing doesn't actually like make noise. Like uh, everybody who rushes to deal with it is kind of, uh, um, uh, assaulted with a scream that seemed to come from inside their head. Like Eddie it looks at Shirley and she's trying to cover her ears and he says, don't do that. Your head might explode. You need to let the scream out, which is not Whoa. how sound works. Yeah. But it's not <laughs> sound apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um and 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 this is one of those things where like it it may well be that this sort of the the concept the the, whatever whatever medium is carrying this transmission uh these psychic screams might not even exist in our universe but could just be like a little bit of it leaked out of the trunk along with this thing yeah But, but but then like why does the human brain have an interface to it? Yeah. Like, like why, why is there just straight up like a, uh, a psionic attack that happens here? The, right. Like, like just if, like, if you think about it at the level of like brain waves, you know, like alpha waves and beta waves and, and, and all of that, like how is it hitting it, hitting us with a frequency that we can perceive? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I like about this, it's not really trying to kill them. It's like panicking. It's spitting out, you know, acid and stuff like that. It has a dog, like straight up attacking it and taking chunks out of it, which ends up being Mr. D's undoing. Um, but it is, you know, lashing out at these things that it doesn't understand. And eventually, what is it? Archie, Eddie, and Shirley, they're doing the same thing. Like they cannot suffer it to live. They're, they're experiencing this like deep down revulsion that that thing ought not be. So they pick up like, a post hole digger and a rake um, and like a pitchfork and start going to town on it. Yeah. It's very, uh, I don't know. I was going to say it's very much like that one video of uh, someone crashing at the end of a police chase being thrown from the thrown from the vehicle. And then a bunch of cops just like descending on this body and beating it with clubs. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I've, I've not seen that video. Um, I will go out of my way to not see it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably for the best. Probably. Uh, cool. What like, and maybe I should have used this referent in the first place. That video made me think of the uh, ape scene from two thousand one. Oh yeah, and, and I, that that is actually a pretty good one. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but this is a bad scene. Anyway, there's extremely, extremely primal, unconscious response. Yes. Um, they don't even think to take pictures of it. Like with the Polaroid, they just have to make, they just have to beat it until it doesn't move anymore. Um, and at the end is when they get the perspective that, you know, like, oh, we, we are monsters to them as they are monsters to us. Um, yeah. A good lesson for cops and robbers too. Hmm. Yeah. Who's, who's the real criminal? I, I mean, like I, <laughs> I well, say one, that one, it, one of them's one of them's the real criminal, but yeah, which one's the real monster? Is the uh, question. Yeah, there, 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 there we go. Cr- cr- criminal is 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 loaded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, crim- criminal, we've established. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, I suppose. Let's let's move on to more to more deeper to, to deeper reads on this. Right. Um. So they take photos of this thing, but it's really no use. It's already starting to. Uh, it's already starting to decompose. They find the radio in the trunk. Uh, it's like a walkie-talkie sized piece of piece of stone. They surmise that it's a radio because they press uh, like an like an upraised section and an antenna pops out. What they think is an antenna. Um, again, there might be some synaptic grade going on. Um, but the big deal here is that uh, that Nazi that they picked up, Brian Lippy, uh, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> right and and like Ennis they just kind of ass- they, he Brian disappears without a trace but everybody kind of just assumes the car ate him yeah they um uh by this point they've watched this stuff happen enough that they say it's almost like an inhalation and an exhalation so like if it, it if it exhales this gigantic thing you know the biggest and most complicated thing that it's put out yet it's possible that it is going to want something else in return. It is going to want to take a breath in and it will, and it will take one of us. Um, and it just happens that they took Brian Lippy, but they have no way of knowing really. Uh, they surmise that this happened, but like he could still be out there like ready to tell the story about the alien that he saw these cops beat to death as he, you know, bled out of his nose. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of the story much to Ned's frustration. Um, the 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 um the story not the framing device but the internal yes. story yes that is the end of the story that the troopers are telling to Ned it's basically like okay um and that's really all that we have to say there were a couple of other couple of other incidents but nothing as big as the worst day ever um so I don't know you want to go get something I want to go something to drink like night's young let's go uh he's not really having it. <laughs> they're like there there was one final conversation curtis and sandy almost came to blows over how much they should be they should yeah, be watching it ned is ned is just assuming that they must have left something out because it's not a story yet no it's just a bunch of stuff that happened it was and then and then and then and not this happened and then as right. a result this and, happens and again this is actually arguably a problem with the book yes um <laughs> like it's weird that it ends up not being like maybe you could see this and be frustrated i i think that this this coda does does a little bit to at least show you that things are headed in a direction yeah yeah i think yeah. it i think it's i think it's just enough yeah which is which is right for like a book that is about to uh, uh, is about like unknowable mysteries that like it's got to give you enough to be tantalizing without really being satisfying yeah, it's like it, it is it is closure of a piece that is like, OK, eventually this will stop being a factor, right? Eventually it will, you know, rust and die. You know, we're, we're, we're going to get to how that how that articulates. Um, but like we're never going to learn why this happened. All that will be is just that it happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, Ned's not very happy. Sandy goes to get dinner and has like this realization that, um, Ned almost asks a question. Well, did any of you try to destroy it? Um, and kind of didn't get it out. And Sandy kind of has a bit of a premonition saying like, okay, well, he's probably going to try and do something stupid. He's right. Ned is sitting in the driver's seat of the car with a gas can and a gun. Uh, the entire thing is soaked with gas. He wants to, you know, set it on fire, which I don't know if that would do anything. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, who knows? Yeah. And Ned is very much like, at one point he says, this killed my daddy. Like, you know, he's, and they've all come to the conclusion that the Buick reached out and caused the accident that killed Curtis, you know, as revenge for, you know, basically the information <laughs> campaign yeah, that, uh, yeah. that, that and Curtis like, waged against I think, it. I think this sort of like, this model of mind control is actually, it's really resonant with me because I actually feel like this is how our brains actually work. <laughs> like the you that is conscious is like my model of it, at least is that like the decision-making happens at a much lower level and the you that is conscious that observing it is, has like, only the tiniest bit of actual control over what's going happen what's going on yeah but it is so important to our for whatever reason it's so important to our psychology to believe that we're in control like we come up with reasons why we did something yeah it is like backward justified like we we, yeah. we already made the decision and what we consider to be agency is uh kind of a story that we tell ourselves um, do you do you remember when the the uh, Twitch plays Dark Souls at the very beginning, where, before they invented the the way to make it turn based, mm -hmm. where like they managed to get to like the the pool next to the um, the asylum demon, yeah. and then could never leave the pool because they couldn't I, find the 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 stairway out. Yeah, watching that video. I feel like that's what dementia is like. Oh yeah. Like just just having like every we all like everybody watching has some idea like no we want to walk up the stairs and get out of the pool. That's what we all want to do. But nobody like but, but, like there it's we're all fighting against each other to do it and the result is you just kind of fucking wander around in the same pool for the rest of your life. Right. And some part of you is observing this happening and going crazy. Right. The, 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 the part of you that creates the intention and observes things that you create the intention in response to, like watches that intention be diffused over the course of any number of inputs and just kind of broken wiring. Yeah. 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 And so Ned, like some force made him walk back to the car and, his consciousness came up with the justification that he's getting revenge for the thing killing his dad. Right. Um, and, you know, depending on how much you think the car or the force that is guiding the car understands about human psychology, you could also say it's exploiting a vulnerability throughout this yeah. entire time. Like, you know, this is, you know, some of this is the story of, is the story of the car, but really it's, you know, he, like he's hearing about his dad. Like that's the thing that he is really curious about. Most of his questions are, and then, you know, what did he think? What did he do? Like, this is a part of, this is a part of his family's life and a part of his past that he never really had any insight into. 
So like yeah. understanding that that is a huge vulnerability that could be that could be leveraged to manipulate uh, Ned into doing what he wants it to do, you know, um, that is either something that was done intentionally or that was the weakest point that would have given to the force anyway. That would have given to you, the force that the Buick exerted. If you believe in the anthropic principle, this story is played out millions of times over millions of universes, but this was the only <laughs> one where the outcome was interesting enough to write a book about. <laughs> like there, there, there were just a bunch of points where like he tripped and landed and uh, tripped, spilled the gas all over himself, and then the, the gun went off and ignited it. Right. Like, oh, yeah. He was like he was like 50 feet away from the car or from, from the shed. <laughs> Or just the mind control didn't work at all. and just went home and was annoyed. <laughs> but it's like, okay, what was the purpose that the, like the, that, that was trying to be achieved? Right. Because the car, you know, so either a, the car wanted, wanted Ned to succeed in trying to destroy it because of the knock on effect that we'll talk about just a little bit later. It wanted Ned dead or it wanted uh, to breathe in something else because like being put into this car, you know, as it is getting ready to breathe in, like, like the portal gonna open, then well, that's that's ultimately what what we end up seeing. Like, what is the man? I, I, I see here. I am asking questions and like getting hypotheses that I'll never have an answer to. Like, like what does it stand to gain from making him do this? Yeah, and and, and we just can't know. That's uh, that's yeah. part of the fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm falling for this book's tricks. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but the but the portal opens up. And, uh, you know, Ned falls through, Sandy catches him, um, you know, and Sandy's kind of the only person who's looking down as Ned is looking up, um, you know, as, as they're being sucked through into the world, uh, we're going to get his account of what's on the other side there later. Um, and the other troopers, you know, come back because they get a sense that something's wrong as well. And they form a literal chain that saves them. And this lines up poetically with something that Sandy talks about, that there is a chain between events, uh, that, you know, that we don't realize, that is connecting us to other things and keeping us from falling into the abyss. So it is very literal that interpretation. Like he, like Ned is saved because of the chain that leads from his father down to him, uh, through troop D. But, uh, yeah. And, and it's made literal by humans. And I think that like, anytime you think about like the idea of there being karmic justice in the universe or like, the idea that, you know, God has a plan mm -hmm. or just the, that the universe cares about us. The only way that these things can be um, become real and affect our lives in any way is if humans actually make it happen. Yes. And so um, that's what is, I think, being depicted there to some extent. I don't yeah, know. If it's, yeah. I don't know if that was like the author's intent, but that's how I read it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit like uh, I don't know. We 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 did Night in the Woods recently, and one of the most salient quotes from that is, "I believe in a universe that doesn't care, but people who do." Yep. Yeah. You know, or like, okay, you you know, you go to church and say, okay, well, like, I've never seen a miracle in my life, and then the somebody says, well, like, medicine's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh -huh. Yeah. Stuff stuff like that, but it's it's made manifest by uh by 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 people uh by people enacting it. Um, and so Ned's safe and we hear, you know, we hear about like one final conversation, you know, Ned had constantly been asking like, what was, what was my dad's hypothesis? And ultimately what Curtis arrived at after he made his peace with this thing sitting out back was that 
the car is sentient and, you know, somehow arranging people's behavior, but its greater purpose is almost as a valve, almost like a pressure release valve, um, equalizing some kind of force between different worlds. And if it went away, if they tried to destroy it, that pressure would uh, be catastrophic, either to the fabric of reality or just to this part of rural, rural Pennsylvania. Yeah, and this is a very effective um, sort of hypothesis because it's very vivid. Yes. Um, and because of its vividness, it feels real to the to like to whoever he was talking to about it, and also to the reader. But it's also just it's just another hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> but just because like this is a horror novel, it's got to be what would actually happen. Right, right. <laughs> just like that's that's my sense of it. Like, oh yeah, that's if I don't know if like Stephen King like knows the facts, but I bet that's his head canon. I mean, that's that's why he has it said last, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so like if the Buick is actually malicious, you know, if it knows that it is going to die, as we have seen, and as like as as uh, Curtis even says, like you know, eventually it'll probably just fall apart. You know, sooner or later, more or less, it will die in its sleep. Like, if the Buick knows it's going to go out, maybe it wants to, A, get revenge again on Curtis by killing his son, but also have it happen through the course of destroying the car and, you know, taking this dimension or this part um, of, you know, of this dimension with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but after this, Sandy, uh, you know, before we get to the epilogue, recounts what he saw when he was saving Ned. Looking down, he saw this alien shore under an alien sky. Um, he saw boots, so parts of Ennis Rafferty's uh, uh, uniform that were left there. He saw the swastika necklace. Um, and also, uh, a little bit uh, menacingly, uh, the part of the uniform, uh, the Stetson that Ennis was wearing, it was on the ground and it had a stake driven through it. Yeah, and this these like these two ideas, the 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 reveal of what what Sandy saw and Curtis's idea of um the hypothesis of what the car might be or some property of it, those are enough that I felt like like the a little bit clicked in 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 my head in terms of like now it's a story. Yes. Now this is like, now you can end this book and it won't feel like I was just given a mishmash of stuff that happened. And I wonder, like, if those two things that happened before they were talking to Ned, would Ned have been satisfied at least a little? Oh, like if they said, like, okay, we at least figured out, we at least figured out where these people who disappeared went. Yeah. yeah. And, and the idea that, and if, if like Ned bought the idea that it was a, a valve. Yeah. Yeah. If Ned was projecting out and realized, okay, this car wasn't sent from this other place, like the 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 Buick was, you know, actually enacting chaos on both of these worlds, right? Like yeah. the 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 stake through the the stake through the hat implies that you know whatever was on the other side also feared the things that were coming through. Yeah, like and and I believe in this in the book they they hypothesized that it was a situation very much like when the the creature with the radio came through and was immediately murdered by four police officers. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they talk about it like, uh, Ennis Rafferty, his boot, like he saw bones sticking out of it. You know, it was either, it was either killed by, 
killed by something sentient or it was eaten by something that was passing by and probably suffered the same fate that Mr. D did. We didn't talk about Mr. D. Oh, my gosh. Um, we talked a little bit about Mr. D. A little bit, yeah. He he he, he ate he, like in the process of killing the humanoid thing. He ate some of the flesh and started started burning from the inside. Uh, his eyes dissolved into jelly, and one of the troopers had to euthanize it by shooting him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a um, I, I on Goodreads there was a review of this book, which was basically that it's just like, oh yeah, Stephen King took the Tommy Knockers and Christine and kind of jammed them together, mm. but. But that in detail is definitely from Eyes of the Dragon. Yes. Oh, yeah. The the, the eating something that burns you from the inside. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this takes us to the epilogue. Uh, Stephen King does a does a real old switcheroo uh, because you know a prominent detail uh, about about Ned is that when his dad died, he got this old car. Uh, you know, just a, a car that was kind of of the same uh, vintage as the Buick. Um, and we hear about an obituary and we hear about a funeral happening, uh, you know, because of this car crashing. We're led to believe that Ned uh, crashes car, you know, under the influence of the Buick. Who knows? No, it turns out it was Eddie committing suicide because he had fully succumbed to his alcoholism again. And, and Ned sold his car to Eddie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the weird little like card trick that i'm not sure what the point of it was no like maybe it's so the last death in the story is um you know kind of goes back to the business as usual thing like no matter no matter how unknowable and how alien this car is the true danger here was still was still the job you know was still just the uh you know prosaic everyday you know danger of living right right yeah I don't know. Um, I'm not. I'm not that crazy about the uh, about the switcheroo. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, it takes. It's, it's like you know, it's set up like a mystery. Like it's it's a misdirection. It's a misdirection that only lasts like two three pages, something like that. Right. I don't. I don't, I don't know if it was worth what Stephen King bought with it. Um. <laughs> so. Um. Yeah. But it turns out, you know, this is four years later. Ned is washed out of college. And he decided that his true place was with Troop D. You know, he's become a trooper just like his dad was. And yep. so after the funeral, you know, while the reception's going on, um, Ned and Sandy are back at the are back at the barracks, and Ned calls Sandy's attention to the Buick. There's a crack in the windshield that's been there for at least two days and it's not healed. You know. Yeah, it's uh it's whatever mechanism or force that's keeping this thing a car apparently is uh is has lost is losing its power yes yeah um the, you know no matter how many of our laws and norms this thing um you know violates it is still subject to entropy yeah apparently yeah and that's from a buick 8 i love this book jim it's real good yeah yeah, it's real good, and it makes me want to like if if I'm gonna like reinvent myself as a reader, which by the way, um, I really want to do before my kid gets old enough to observe and like see me as a role model. Uh, oh, uh, I need to uh, maybe I should be seeking out more like modern Lovecraft ish stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary is good for uh, is good for those things. He, cool. Uh, he has good recommendations um based on based on that so i would i would direct you his way sounds good yeah 
Um, but yeah, definitely. You don't want to be like, okay, he's paying attention. Now I start reading. It needs to be something that would, uh, that would have been done, um, before he even noticed, right? Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, do you have any final thoughts on the book? And not off the top of my head. They've all, we, we've, we've covered it pretty well, I think. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I feel like I've said everything I need to say. Uh, this is a, a huge recommendation. If you have listened to this, there's a lot of detail that, you know, that just happens here. The, uh, the everyday life of the, uh, uh, of the barracks, um, is still really cool to read about. Um, Jim, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I am, uh, Mogwai poet on Twitter, M O G W A I underscore P O E T. Uh, and you can find my games on twinbeard.com and I record a, uh, podcast with the, the kingdom of loathing folks at videogameshotdog.com. And uh, that's that's about this. Oh, also, if you're on Mastodon, like I I removed Twitter from my phone because it was making me miserable. But uh, so if you want to, like, actually communicate with me in a way where I'm going to notice and respond, you're better off reaching out to me at Mastodon. I'm at, I'm at Mogwai Poet at Mastodon.social. OK, so there it is. Cool. Um, Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. This has been a good time. Um, yeah, everybody, everybody who's listening has, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, the stuff that, uh, they, they, that you can do patreon.com slash duck TV. Um, check out the other shows on the network. If you like horror related things, which you probably do check out hexcrank.com where I do, uh, live streams and also retrospective articles and videos about horror games going back, um, you know, as far as I can go. Uh, yeah, just, they're, they're really good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and that's just about everything. So, uh, we're going to take our leave here. Uh, we're going to be back next time with the beginning of Song of Susanna. Um, and until then, long days and pleasant nights. And to you as well. Well,